0: Brothers and sisters, uh, once again, good morning. I greet you all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the past five weeks, we have considered different theological topics that I believed would be helpful for our church. This Lord's Day and, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, we will consider two more different doctrines or topics that I believe will be helpful for our church, and then we will return to the book of Genesis, right? This morning, we shall consider the doctrine of church discipline, the doctrine of church discipline. Now, let me say as a caveat before I begin, this sermon is not prompted by any of the Uh, matters that have happened in our church over the past few years concerning discipline. Uh, This matter is also not to address one specific individual or one specific situation, but rather it is to address the entire doctrine of church discipline itself. Also, let me say that this sermon will not answer all of the questions that we might have concerning church discipline. Instead, we will give some considerations from the church of Corinth that we will learn as Paul deals with the matter of church discipline in just a few moments. Brothers and sisters, let's begin with a very simple question. What is church discipline? What is church discipline? If you're anything like me, you did not grow up in a church where a doctrine Of church discipline was upheld by confession or practice, meaning church discipline is new for mostly all of us. If you're anything like me, when a person in the church was found to be living in sin, the church did not corporately gather to make a judgment on that person. The sin of that individual was talked about, but it was more so talked about in the form of gossip, and gossip to shame, not discussed corporately for the purpose of restoration. There was no call to repentance, there was no turning that person over to Satan, and there was no talk of restoration. Church was viewed as more personal rather than corporate. Yes, we corporately gathered, but letting someone into your life And practicing accountability to elders and to the congregation was non-existent. It may be for this reason that some of us, not all of us, but some of us, find it hard or difficult to open up our lives to other believers. And even also find it difficult to accept the idea of church discipline. Because we have been trained to think that Christianity is more private rather than corporate. And therefore, what is done in secret shall be kept in secret because it's my business and no one else's. If you're anything like me in the way that I was raised. Brothers and sisters, that is error. It's not the way that God has structured his church. It's not what God has prescribed for his people within the church. We must confess that some of the ways that we have been taught have been wrong. Today, with God's help, we will consider lessons from the Apostle Paul's interaction with the Church of Corinth on a matter of church discipline. Hold on to your seats when I say this. We shall consider ten lessons and then conclude with some practical applications. Before we walk into those uh, ten lessons or things that we learn from Paul's interaction with the Church of Corinth, I'd like to, first of all, uh, deal with some definitions of church discipline and some explanations So first of all, what is church discipline? In broad terms, church discipline is one part of the discipleship process in the church. Church discipline is one part of the discipleship process in the church. It is that part where we correct sin and point the believer toward a better path, namely obedience to God's word. For one to be a disciple... They must be disciplined. If you are a disciple of Christ, then one of the things that, that is the motif of your life is that you are a disciplined one. A Christian is disciplined through instruction and through correction. It is for this reason that there remains a, an age-old practice of referring to both corrective discipline and instructive discipline as formative and corrective formative and corrective. Let me just say, as I said in the morning class, when you think of discipline, does your mind automatically go to those things which are negative? If so, then we need to be formally or formatively taught this morning that all discipline is not negative, that discipline has positive aspects to it. In terms of formative discipline, Formative discipline takes place every single day. Formative discipline takes place as you are looking up a recipe and learning how to cook it. You are being formed or shaped in your understanding of how to do something. You're being uh, taught, disciplined on a particular matter. This happens when you're fixing a car and you're looking it up on YouTube, which I think most of us learn how to do things nowadays or Google. Uh, You're being disciplined formally or you are being formatively disciplined, taught, when you are reading a book, when you are watching a, a television show. I'm learning. I'm trying to learn a different language right now, and each day I am formatively being taught that particular language. I'm being disciplined. And it's not negative, it's actually very good. So when we think of discipline, let us not immediately in our minds go to negativity, 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 but let's, look, let's think of discipline in terms of all of it being good. All of it being for our good. Amen. There is formative discipline. Uh, right now, you are going through formative discipline. You are a disciple of Christ. And right now, your understanding of discipline and church discipline is being formed and shaped. And it's a good thing. Uh, you should not see every aspect of discipline as negative, but you should see even the other side of discipline, which we'll talk about, even that as being positive, even though it's not, uh, even though it's, it's, it's not, uh, what's the word that, that the book of Hebrews uses? It's, it's not, uh, what's the word? Uh, all discipline is not enjoy, enjoy, enjoyable, let's say it that way. Profitable, no, it's always profitable, but enjoyable. No, no discipline is always, not every discipline is enjoyable when it first comes to you, but it ultimately is profitable. Does that make sense? So, right now you are experiencing formative discipline through the preaching and teaching of God's word. The other side of that is corrective discipline. Corrective discipline helps to correct the disciple through correcting sin or correcting wrong thinking. And this is done more personally. When we are correcting wrong thinking or sin, that is more personal rather than public or corporate. If there is a person who is walking in sin, it is our responsibility to go to that person and to call them back to the right path. Let let me ask you this since I asked it this morning. When someone is in sin, whose responsibility is it to call that person back to a right path of living? Whose responsibility? Please don't point at me because it is the responsibility of, Of the one who sees it. Therefore, it is all of our responsibility. If you are seeing someone in sin, you don't say, well, if the pastor does not see it or the elders don't see it, I'm not going to say anything. It's none of my business. It's your business. You have constituted in this church that it will be your business. That if someone is walking waywardly, if someone is believing something unorthodox, you have constituted that you will do something about it. Rather than saying, I'll wait for the elders to do something about it. No, it is your responsibility, my respon our responsibility to do something about it. And, and we all use the age old example. If someone was driving down a road that would lead to a, a dead end, and also to a deadly de- dead end, would you not warn them? Of course you would. If you loved them in any kind of way, you would warn them, wouldn't you? Of course you would. I said to the to the class this morning we will more readily correct our blood brother and blood sister or child, but let's say blood brother and blood sister, who are not believers, who are not related to us by faith, than we will our believing brother and sister, who we commonly confess all of the same things. We will correct our blood brother and sister quicker than we will our spiritual brother and sister, the one that we will spend eternity with, Quicker than we will, or less quicker than we will, our bro- blood brother and sister, brothers and sisters, that should not be the case. If there is someone who is walking in sin, who is your brother and sister in Christ, call them on it. They need your help. There are blind spots that we all have that we cannot see, and we need someone to help us. We'll talk more about that as we proceed in this sermon. In terms of in terms of church discipline, church discipline, it is the act of removing an individual. From membership in the church and also removing them from from participation in and at the Lord's Supper. We don't believe that it is a removal from uh, the church attendance altogether or from the public gatherings. That if someone is excommunicated, this, this does not mean we believe that they're not allowed to come to church anymore. But rather, if someone, even if they are in sin, we still want them to come. Because the best place where they can hear God's word and be corrected and convicted of their sin is in the hearing and preaching of God's word. Excommunication is the last step in church discipline. It is the church's public statement that it can no longer affirm the person's profession of faith by calling him or her a Christian. It is a refusal to welcome that unrepentant sinner to the Lord's Supper. It is excommunication or excommuning that person. That's number one. The purpose of church discipline. So secondly, what is the purpose of church discipline? Discipline aims to expose, remove, and restore to right living. Hear that? It is aiming to expose sin, remove sin, and then restore that individual to a right path or right living. Brothers and sisters, uh, sin is like cancer. It loves to hide. Discipline exposes the cancer so that it might be cut out quickly. And so that person, so that that person can be restored to good health. Secondly, discipline, what's the purpose of it? It aims to warn. Discipline aims to warn. A church does not enact God's retribution through discipline. Rather, it stages a, a small play that pictures the great judgment that is to come. Therefore, discipline is a compassionate warning. You don't want to stand before God in sin. Thirdly, the purpose of discipline, it aims to save. Churches pursue discipline when they see a member taking the path towards death. And none of their pleading, none of their uh, warnings are causing that person to turn around. It is the last device, the last resort Of bringing that person, hopefully, to repentance and back to restoration. Fourthly, it aims to protect. Just as cancer spreads from one cell to another and it spreads quickly, so sin spreads quickly from one person to another. So we are not just protecting the individual, we are also protecting the church. Fifthly, it aims to present a good witness for Jesus. Church discipline is actually good For non-Christians to see. It's good for non-Christians to see the church practicing discipline. Why? Because it helps to preserve the attractiveness and the the distinctiveness of God's people. We should be salt and we should be light. Uh, What is one of the things that people outside of the church say about the church? A bunch of hypocrites in there. They say don't walk in sin, but all of them are sinning in some kind of way. But when we take sin seriously in the church, the outsiders say about the insiders, well, there's something distinctive about at least your church. And hopefully that will attract them to Christ. Thirdly, why should we practice church discipline? Because the Lord commanded it. Because the Lord, when he was on earth, gave these instructions in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15-18. through 18. You can read it for yourselves. This uh, passage does not say that when someone is caught in sin that we should tell it to our friends or tell it to our neighbors. But rather, when someone is caught in sin, we should tell it to the church as they gather collectively, collectively to hear and make a judgment on that particular matter. So then, as we come to the matter presented to us in the letter to the church of Corinth, to the Corinthians, we are hearing... The frustration from the Apostle Paul because the church of Corinth was not employing the remedial means instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, but more specifically Matthew 18. I know i speaking really fast. Okay, stay with me. Therefore, church discipline, uh, it does not come from an angry apostle. But church discipline comes from the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. Church discipline is from the Lord because it brings glory to the Lord on the earth. Some people, they may stay away from church membership. They may shy away from church membership because of a fear that they may one day have to face church discipline. Brothers and sisters, we we must have a right view about church discipline. Uh, it has not been instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ for the detriment of the people of God, but on the contrary. It has been instituted for the good of the people of God. It is for our preservation, and it is for our protection. Are there challenges that come along with church discipline? Of course. There's challenges in in every aspect of ministry. But those challenges should not deter us from obeying what Christ has instituted for the good of his church. Uh, The biggest challenge is not what we will potentially experience if we practice church discipline, but rather the biggest challenge will be no doubt what we will face if we do not practice church discipline and if we do not obey the command of Christ. What is it? We will be judged by Christ for not obeying his command, for not honoring his lordship over his church. If we do not obey the commands of Christ to practice church discipline, we dishonor Christ and we pollute our church with what Paul calls old leaven. If we do not obey this command to practice church discipline, we will do damage to the souls that desperately need God's rod in the form of church discipline. And we will also be unfaithful witnesses in the world around us. Now then, with all of that said, let us examine this case of church discipline in the church of Corinth and see how all that we have learned thus far is played out in the church of Corinth. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, or chapter 5, I believe. Paul is writing to this church from Ephesus. There is actually, you might not know this, but 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. Because Paul wrote a letter first to the church of Corinth that we do not have. And so, as Paul is writing this first letter to the church of Corinth, he's referring to things that he said to them in his first letter that we do not have. So this is actually 1 Corinthians, but it is Paul's second letter that is written two years after his first letter. Confusing, or does that make sense? So then, it has been two years since the first letter, and in that two-year period, Paul has received a report about the church of Corinth and things that are happening there. Let's see what happened, and let's gain some understanding. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2, I said 5, I meant 1 and 2, I'm sorry. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sophonies, our brother, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who are in every place, call on the name of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Here's point number one of our ten lessons that we learn. Sometimes sin, even terrible sin, exists in God's church. Number one, sometimes sin, even terrible sin, exists in God's church. Brothers and sisters, does anyone want to guess what was the most problematic church in all of the New Testament? Anyone want to take a stab in the dark as to which church had the most problems and issues and may have been a thorn in Paul's side? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to to discover that it was the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth is most likely the church that most pastors do not want their church to emulate. And yet, when the apostle opens up his letter to the church of Corinth... He, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls that church the church of God. The church of God. He also says saints are there. He also says that the Lord is your Lord and, or, or my Lord and our Lord. He's not disqualifying them from the fact that they are the church of God, that they are saints of God, that Christ is his Lord and that Christ is their Lord. As we move forward into this sermon... Keep this point at the forefront of your mind. This is the church of God. This is the, these are the saints of God. This was not an apostate church. It was the church of God. It was not a heretical church. They were the church of a living God. And yet consider chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. In light of the fact that this is the church of God, the apostle writes and says, it is actually reported. There's a report that has come to him. That there is immorality among you. He does not say the church is immoral, but he says there is immorality among you. And immorality, listen to what kind, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. There is a type of immorality that is taking place among you that is not even found among those who do not believe in God. The godless. And here's what it is. That someone, a man, has his father's wife. There was a flagrant sin that was taking place in the church of Corinth. A sin that would have shocked the godless. A man was committing adultery with his mom, or stepmom. A man was having his father's wife. A man that was a confessing believer. Now, as far as we know, the stepmom was not a believer. Because the only person that is being accused here is the man. A man has his father's wife. The man will be pressed, Remove this man. It's about this man. Not necessarily about the stepmom and so on and so forth. So we're focusing on this man. How can this church be the church of God, and yet in the midst is one whose sin is not even found among pagans? The answer very simple. Being a Christian is not just about making a one-time decision. It's about a faith and repentance that yield a whole new pattern of decisions. It's about submitting to Christ as Lord, all of these things. God intends for His people to look different than the world. He intends for us to live holy lives and to war against sin, to put sin to death. That's repentance. And it takes place every single day. But repentance does not mean, however, that a person who is a confessor of Christ stops sinning for the rest of their lives. It does mean That they have declared war against that sin. But it also means that sometimes sin wins the battle. Not the war, but the battle. In our midst, this morning, there are those who are warring against sin. In our midst, this morning, there are those who are fighting temptation. There are those who are looking sin and, and Satan and the world in the face and are saying, no, And yet in their hearts, and not their hearts, but in their flesh, there is a, a, a drawing toward that sin. And yet they are resisting it with all of the power of the Spirit of God within them. This is happening this morning. And this morning, maybe among us, there are those who have even given up in that battle. There are those who are fighting, and then there are even those among us who have given up in that battle. They've given in to sin, and they are sitting among you this morning. Possibly. And we must not be shocked when we learn that there is a person who has confessed Christ and he was also given into sin. Now, we should be shocked when we hear of a man, and I need to say this, like a Joshua Harris, who has not only, who has lived a pattern of kissing things goodbye. You may not know who this man is, but he is an author of a book that was written many years ago, that that is called and stated, I kissed dating goodbye. Well, he has kissed Christianity goodbye as well. And not only that, but he has now kissed the idea of marriage between one man and one woman goodbye as well. He has a history of kissing things goodbye. So when we look at a man like this, that should shock us. But when we are among believers, and we are seeing that fellow believers are fighting sin, and even sometimes giving into it. That should not shock us. It's the reality of living in a fallen world. But it also gives us a longing toward the time that there will be no more sin and no more warring, and a time when we will be not wrestling against sin, but that we will be resting in Christ eternally. It should long, give us a longing for the fulfillment of all things that Christ has promised. This does not mean... That because there is such a sinner in the church, the church is not a true church. And also does not mean that the believer is not a true believer. Though they are dealing with difficult and deadly and even grievous sin, our greatest hope is to see them repent of that sin and return to Christ. Secondly, these are going to go quicker now. A true church commits sin when they tolerate sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, here's what it says. Paul says, So there is sin in the church, and he says, you become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. The church did not have a right biblical response to this man's sin. Rather than calling this man to repent, they allowed the sin to continue. Rather than mourning over this man's sin and, and, and praying for him to repent of it and to turn to Christ, they tolerated the sin. And how do they do that? They tolerated the sin when they do not call the man to repent, but they also continue to treat the man as if he's not sinning. The toleration of sin. When the church does not called the sinner to repent, but allows sin to continue and even tolerate it, the church becomes just as guilty as the one who has sinned. We must never allow sin to continue, to grow among us, lest it become a cancer among us and infect the entire bunch. We must also not let it stain the witness of the church of Christ that we have been charged with in the world. What was the result? Number three, the church that does not correct sin must be rebuked for their lack of correcting sin. Let's just say it this way. The church that does not correct sin must be rebuked. The church that does not correct sin must be rebuked. First Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2 and 6. Here it is. You have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 6. Your boasting is no good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Leaven is also known as yeast. Those of you who are bakers, you understand the purpose of yeast. Yeast is mixed with flour so that flour can rise. The dough can rise. If you leave it alone, it will begin to rise on its own. And it just takes a little bit. I remember I asked asked my wife when I was reading this passage a few months ago, maybe. How much yeast should you put in dough in order for it to rise? She goes, oh, just a pinch. I said, if I put the whole thing in there, what would happen? And she said, it would fill the entire house. You don't want to do that, right? It's going to infect the entire thing. And so it is with sin in the church. Just a little sin tolerated in the church will cause the entire church to be negatively affected. The church cannot, must not tolerate sin. And for the church that does tolerate it, the rebuke of the Lord is warranted. That glaring stop signal must be waived in order to prevent further damage in the church. And it will not just benefit the one who is sinning, but it will also affect and benefit those who have not sinned. Because we will see either how serious we are about sin or how serious we are not about sin. Either way, it's going to have an effect. We must not put the Lord to the test. We must not take for granted his grace. We must not say about those who are in sin, well, we must just, we've got to just forgive them and overlook it. no. We don't tolerate it. We don't overlook it. We don't sweep it under the rug. We correct it and call them to repent. We must not take the matter lightly. We are, if we take it lightly, we're not showing how serious the death of Christ really was and is. Christ died for sin. When we look to the cross, it's because of sin. When we treat sin as if it's no big deal, then we're looking at the, the cross of Christ and saying, you didn't even need to do that. It's a serious matter. When we look at sin and do not see that it cost Christ his life, we do violence to the cross of Christ. Number four, the church must address sin proactively. So we've already read verse two. Let's read verse seven and verse nine. Verse seven, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb also has been sacrificed. And verse nine, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Paul's charge of the church is to obey Christ. What's the uh, command? Remove the man from among you. He's been caught in sin. But more than his being caught in sin, he's not repented of his sin. That's the difference. Uh, we are all going to, at some point or another, wrestle with sin and even maybe be in sin. But are we repenting of sin? And that's the point. Paul's charge is call the church together. This is in verse five, 4 and 5. Uh, when he says, when you are assembled, that is a call the church together. Make a judgment of this unrepentant sinner. He's still among you. More than likely, he was still partaking of the Lord's Supper. He's still functioning like a true believer, but his life is contrary, and you must remove his cancer. Paul was calling for members to have a members meeting for the purpose of the church making a judgment on this unrepentant sinner. And he was calling calling them to practice church discipline. He says, what does he say? Deliver such a one over to Satan. Practice church discipline or excommunicate him. They were to treat this man as an outsider. They were to not recognize that what he was displaying as Christianity, that's not true Christianity. We don't see what you, your brand of Christianity, we do not recognize that as being true Christianity. That's what they were to judge. They were to keep company. Or they were not to keep company or to associate themselves with this person. Now that's, that's I have a family member who recently left the Jehovah's Witness church. And because he's left the church, he has been ostracized even by his own family who are a part of that church. They are not allowed to speak to him. They are not allowed to have him over. There is to be no contact. That's not, I think, what Paul is getting at. He says in verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with a a so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an adulterer or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What is he saying? The apostle is not saying you cannot spend time with these people who are in sin. Let me just say emphatically, we encourage you to do so. But with the purpose of winning them back to the Lord and calling them to repent and restoration. If we're simply hanging out with him. And the matter of sin is never addressed. And and, and even if we say things like, hey, man, I love you, or hey, sister, I love you. I don't have anything to do with all of that. You're my buddy. That's not going to get in the way of our friendship. Now you're overlooking sin. Now you're looking at sin as if it's not a big deal. And now you're degrading the cross of Christ Christ, who has died for that sin. No, the matter should be brought up lovingly. There is obviously going to be some kind of work that needs to be done to get to that conversation. But the conversation should be had. What then is Paul talking about with the uh, disassociation? Uh, He's talking about not treating them in the church as if they are a true Christian in spite of the sin that they are giving into. Which also means not inviting them to the Lord's table. So you are not inviting them to a place that we commune with God in right standing with God, but rather we are saying you're not invited here because the way that you're living does not show that you actually want true communion with Christ. So we are to remove them from the supper. Are we to remove them from our gatherings? No, come, because a message like this would hopefully convict your heart that you might repent and return to Christ. But when it comes to the other things, like the Lord's Supper, we would just say, no, but you are not welcomed here. Repent. Turn from your sin. Don't treat their sin like it doesn't exist. Don't join them at the Lord's Supper and say, here, share with me. No. Verse 13, he says, those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked men from among yourselves. So, thus far we've learned some helpful lessons and we're going to move quicker as we move forward the church of Corinth was corrupted by the presence of sexual immorality that was unrepented of they were not dealing with it properly and in not dealing with it they were sinning and making the matter worse for themselves Paul rebukes them and calls them to come together for the, rep- for the purpose of rendering a judgment on that guilty party once the judgment has been rendered, excommunicate that guilty one from among them. Treat him as an unbeliever, a tax collector. Turn him over to Satan. So, what did the church of Corinth do? Second Corinthians tells us. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 2. This now is two years later. So, it appears to be every two years the Apostle Paul is writing something to the church of Corinth. They went through this matter for two years. They went through this matter of church discipline over a course of two years. Number five, the Corinthians enacted judgment on the guilty sinner. Verses uh, one through six, chapter two. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but But that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such is a punishment, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Excuse my terrible reading there.
1: The church of Corinth.
0: They obeyed the scriptures. They ultimately removed this man from their midst. They practiced church discipline. They assembled. They called for a resolution. They voted. And the man was excommunicated. How do we know all of this? Well, we make an educated assumption based upon the text and the language of the text that's confirmed by other passages. How do we know that they gathered together, they made a vote, and the vote was cast in this direction? Verse 6. Sufficient for one. For such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by what? The majority. The punishment was inflicted by the majority. The majority of who? The majority of believers. Well, you can't have a majority unless there's a minority. And you can't have a statement like a majority unless there was some kind of casting of a decision or casting of a vote. This indicates that some, we do not know how many, some did not agree with the decision. But the majority did agree with this this decision that was inflicted on this man to excommunicate him from the church. Number six, the church insisted on an unreasonable debt from the disciplined man. Verse five through seven. If any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow to me. But in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you, sufficient for such a one, Is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What did they do? The church practiced church discipline. They excommunicated him. They did. But they also put him in the doghouse. What do I mean by that? They inflicted such a punishment on the man that it made the man... Even more sorrowful than he needed to be because he began to repent. So when he repented, the church said, no, 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 no. You ain't coming back. There's no way you're, you stay in that doghouse. You're not allowed back into the church. Paul's saying, this is causing me sorrow. Not as much sorrow as it's causing you, though. It's sorrowful for me, but it should be even more sorrowful for you. Why? Because you're causing sorrow on this man who has repented. He's turned from his sin. He's recognized that what he has done is wrong. And you are still not receiving him back. Now you're in the wrong... You've gone from one extreme tolerating sin to the other extreme being intolerant of repentance. The man was disciplined, sorrowful. He repented. The church would not accept this man's repentance. They would not reaffirm their love for him. They were requesting too much from him. You repented. I repented. What more can I do? Uh, Get back on the cross and then you can come back to church. We must be careful of that as well. Of not taking uh, someone's repentance as being sincere but then expecting even more from them after they... It's almost as if... But I'm watching you now. And and what were you doing this morning? And what about this afternoon? And what about this evening? And we, we don't... Accept repentance with the condition that we will now be your parole officer. When church discipline is practiced, our ultimate goal must be to restore that believer and see them return to Christ. Moving on, number seven. Church discipline can sometimes drag on unnecessarily. We just read verse seven. We do realize that it's been two years since this letter has been written. The letter is, is written to the church For the, in this part, uh, for the benefit of this man. First letter, he sinned. Call him to repentance or excommunicate him. Second letter, he's repented. Receive him back. His focus is not necessarily on the man anymore, but on the church. And both times it's on the church. Church, call this man to repent. Church, accept this man's repentance. At first, Paul is writing to the church again. To accept, and then the second letter is to, or or to remove, and then the second letter is to restore. It appears as though they were wanting this man to live a flawless life. To be sinless before they ever accepted him back. And this man was in that state of discipline for two years. Two years of sorrow. Two years of not being forgiven. And it, it, it appears even this church, when they saw this man, they would not even acknowledge him. That's why Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate yourselves with these people and these people and these people, but not with this person. This person's your brother. Reaffirm your love for him. Associate. He's one of your your members. Bring him back in. Don't ignore him. But why were they not to ignore him? Because he repented. Because he repented of sin. Number eight. Removal of church discipline constitutes a reaffirmation of love. Uh, let me say this. When someone is disciplined, it is not our desire to say, I never want to love you again. It, it, is, it should always be our desire to say, I would love for our relationship to be restored, for you to return to the church. I know of a man who has gone to the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, and my heart breaks for that individual. Come back to true Christianity. You are You are in a false gospel-preaching church. It should always be our desire to reaffirm our love for that person when they have repented of their sin and returned to Christ. Verse 8. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I just said that. How, How do we reaffirm our love for someone that has been disciplined? not by sweeping things under the rug. Of course not. That's not what the church of Corinth did, though. They called together the church. They presented the issue. They took a vote. They enacted discipline on the man who was unrepentant. He was excommunicated. Over time, he showed godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, as Paul says, leads to repentance, which leads to life. Therefore, they were urged, as Paul received this report, to receive him back. And... Even more importantly, to reaffirm his confession of faith. That's ultimately our role. It's our responsibility. Not just just to say, brother, I love you. But we have been authorized to make such judgments about believers that what you are confessing and how I see you living, that is a true believer living in true uh, confession to their faith. Brothers and sisters, we ultimately don't have the final say. God has the final say, right? But we've been charged with the authority. Our authority is not like God's authority, if that makes sense. God will ultimately judge that individual. But we have been charged to say, what I see, according to what the scriptures teach, that's not true Christianity. And we cannot at least affirm your confession. It would be like this we're wearing a jersey, a Christian jersey. And we cannot give you one of those jerseys because you don't appear to be on the team. But this individual was saying, I am. I'm showing every, all of the signs of saying, I'm with Christ. But they were saying, no, 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 you, you can't have one of these. Paul's saying, reaffirm your love for that man. Number nine, the removal of church discipline is a test of obedience and, we mu- and it must involve full forgiveness. Removal of church discipline is a test. Not removal. It should be the practice of church discipline is a test of obedience and must involve full forgiveness. Verse 9 and 10. Where am I at? For this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things but one whom you have... But one but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Were they going to obey? Paul was challenging them. It was a test of whether or not they would function as Christ has called them to function in the world. Whether or not they would use the keys of the kingdom in the way that Christ has prescribed for his church. If they were going to forgive, then forgive. But they must not hold this man's sin over his head. And, verse, uh, and finally, number 10. When there is not full forgiveness, a door is left open for Satan to come in. When there is not full forgiveness, a door is left open for Satan to come in. This is verse 12 and finally, or 11. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. We are not ignorant Of his schemes. Forgive. If a person is truly repentant, forgive him. Receive him back. If you do not forgive him, if you do not receive him back, then we leave a door open for Satan to come in and to wreak havoc in the church. Satan wants to destroy the church. He will use any kind of advantage to create division in the church. And when we are not people of the book of God's word... We become allies of Satan in his attempt to destroy the church. We must not be ignorant of his schemes. Let us also rejoice that Christ has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Now then, those are ten lessons that we've learned from that matter of of discipline. To conclude, what might we say that has not already been said? When it comes to church discipline, we must understand that there is an in- In the body of Christ, and there's an out of the body of Christ. This past week, we had the privilege of recognizing two new members, and we declared, based upon their testimony, and based upon the time that you have been able to be around them and to know them, they're in. The Bible is clear that there are those who are members of the body of Christ, and there are those who are outsiders. If a congregation does not understand this, The idea of putting someone out will sound ridiculous and even foreign and, dare I say, unbiblically legalistic. For some, the idea of church discipline, of the church declaring that a professor of faith is actually a true believer, it strikes uncomfortable fear in the hearts of some because of the age-old cliche, well, I don't know their heart. And I've said this over and over again. We see their heart. Your heart is played out in the actions and words of your life. Church membership is not membership or like membership of a club or some other voluntar- voluntary organization. It is about citizenship in a kingdom in which we are affirmed and recognized as ambassadors of the king's embassy. The local church. We don't get to declare about ourselves, I belong to Christ, and baptize ourselves, and give ourselves the Lord's Supper. The church has been given the authority by Christ to hold the power of the keys of the kingdom. When we become members, we submit to oversight in the church. We don't have the authority to uh, resign our membership when we are threatened with discipline. People join a church by the authority of the church. And they exit a church by the authority of the church. Congregations need to understand that part of being a disciple of Christ is knowing how to be corrected and taught by other disciples of Christ. Your elders are constantly encouraging members, you, to build relationships with one another. And with that, we must begin to build relationships where correction and instruction are normal. When was the last time you were corrected by a member and did not get offended, but accepted it in love? When was the last time? We have so much pride and we have so many hurts. And because we have so much pride and because we've been hurt so many times, we're afraid to tell anybody anything. Because we're afraid that they might, receive, they might not receive it or they might get hurt and leave the church. Brothers and sisters, if there is something that you see in me that is causing me to go wayward or that, that is not reflecting Christ in the way that it should, please, I implore you, correct me. And do so lovingly. There are some people, as I was saying this morning, and Brother Tony, I hope you don't mind, I was saying, there's people like my brother Tony who would say, just tell me. Don't beat around the bush with me, just tell me. I'm a big boy, I can take it. And, and, and meaning mature, and there's others who you have to kind of tiptoe around to get to that issue because there are hurts there that are true, and there is pride there as well, but we need to all begin to accept i I want correction I want instruct instruction I want we all I have blind spots that I cannot see that I need others who love me to point them out. A gospel-grounded individual learns to invite correction and also learns how to tenderly give it as well. When this is normal in the church, church church discipline makes more sense. When it's not present, formal discipline will seem as though it's coming out of nowhere. Brothers and sisters, we are all prone to wander, are we not? The apostle warns again and again to the church of Corinth, don't be deceived. Let no one deceive himself. Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's easy to say that we have no sin and so deceive ourselves. We must not forget that we are prone to self-deception. We're also prone to self-righteousness. And what's the solution? Invite discipline. Invite correction. Ask for correction. Uh, Welcome rebukes. Don't you want to grow? Don't you want to be better than, or are you content with who you, and who you are and what you are today? I'm not. I want to be better. It is the way of humility. It is the way of wisdom. My, my son is uh, enamored. He is just in love with running. And I'll show him videos of some of the greatest runners who ever lived, Jesse Owens. I'll show him videos of Carl, Carl Lewis, and uh, our most uh, recent uh, Usain Bolt. And showing him, this is how you run. This is how you stride. And sometimes he'll say, "Okay." And I'll say to him, "Son, don't you want to get better?" I do. These are the ways that you get better. You watch someone. You observe how they're doing. We must not ever think we have arrived. The same goes for our Christianity. Do we want to be what we are today, tomorrow, or do we want to be better? How will that come? By us figuring it out in our own heads? No. When was the last time that you did not deceive yourself, believing that you had the right answer, but brought your idea, your thought to someone who is more learned than you are, and said to them, here's something I've got correct any error in my thinking and in my theology on this matter, I'm open to correction. And you really meant it. Sometimes we come with an idea or a theology that we simply want someone to co-sign for us, because we've already made up our own minds. But when we come without our minds made up, really seeking direction, really seeking correction, And willing to accept it. And longing to accept it. Brothers and sisters, then we will grow. Then we will display that we truly are disciples of Christ. Imagine being around Christ every day. Imagine how many times, how many things, how many thoughts were corrected by the disciples. Every single day, a wrong thought or a new thought was being implanted into their minds. Every single day. Well, you have Christ now living in you. And you have his word at your hand. Let us therefore embrace all that Christ has for us so that we might be more like him and less like ourselves. The local church exists in part to protect us from ourselves. Again, we have blind spots and we've been given brothers and sisters to help us see things that we cannot. Why do you think we teach so much about what God commands. How can we learn to love each other more and more in the local church? Unless we bring all of these things and say, brother and sister, I encourage you to this. Discipline is not for the sake of retribution. Discipline is not for the matter of getting revenge. It's for the sake of love. Discipline is fundamentally about love. The Lord disciplines those He loves. And the same is true for His church. The problem is that we have a, a sentimentalized view of love, that love is supposed to make me feel special, <laughs> or we have a romanticized view of love. Love is, is being allowed to express myself without you judging me or without you correcting me. No. If you're saying something, if you're saying, yeah, the, um, you know, Bakersfield is the largest city in all of the United States, and you're walking around telling people, Did you know, Bakersfield's the largest city in the entire United States you're going to sound foolish and and we love you enough to say I I don't want you to, to walk around saying foolish things. In the popular mind, love has little to do with truth and holiness and authority. But that is not the love of the Bible. Love in the Bible is holy. Love in the Bible makes demands. Love in the Bible yields in obedience. It does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. Jesus tells us that if we keep his commandments, that we abide in his love. And John tells us if we keep his word, the word of Christ, then God's love will be perfected in us. How do church members help one another abide in Christ's love and to see the perfection of God's love in the world? We do this through instruction and through correction. A church that understands biblical love stands a far better chance of understanding and embracing church discipline. Brothers and sisters, I pray that that was helpful for you. And I pray that we all would come to someone after church and say to them, Okay, if you see anything wrong in me, please, I ask you, call me on it. Because I want to grow. And really, really mean it. Let's pray.